Storymakers. I'm Angie Powers. I'm Elizabeth Stark. And this is Storymakers Show. Today on Storymakers Show, we're going to talk about learning and growing as writers, as characters, and in pedagogy. Mm-hmm. All right. But first, what are you working on? Well, right now I've got a new idea, and I actually am um, wanting to explore horror. <laughs> and a friend of ours from school has uh, what sounds like a possibly amazing set and is super open to my using it for a contained horror film. So, What is drawing you to horror? Is it, is it a peel? <laughs> well, I think Jordan Peele's work certainly impacted me. I was never drawn to things like slasher films in Jason. that way. Um, and I love how effectively his work has communicated these bigger ideas. And maybe I was just a, a snob, I guess. Like I was, you know, but I think I always associated it with just, you know, the young woman running through the woods being chased by of, an axe. There was axe. a lot of sexism without any critique. Mm-hmm. And I think what we saw... And Jordan Peele's work is is that like deep critique use of horror mm-hmm. to talk about sort of what is what is wrong with this being horrifying, right? So you see the the young woman screaming and getting murdered and whatever in the in the sort of eighties horror. Right. There isn't really a critique. It isn't saying like should it be terrifying to be young and female. Like right. no, that's sort of like so that I think that horror has shifted. Maybe. I just, I don't know if maybe I was just mm, too fancy for my pants. No. No. I okay. No. What, are you, what, what are you working on? <laughs> I am revising. I am simplifying. And I'm really excited about it. I actually feel like I'm, I'm kind of shocked that there are still layers to get to at this point. Mm-hmm. But um, I feel it coming together really powerfully and i i hope i'm right that's um yeah so i'm that's i'm revising and it's a really interesting process too because um you know like i'll i'll be working on a line level you know editing a scene like i printed a scene and then i edited it by hand and input stuff and then i moved on to the next scene and then in the middle of it i suddenly understood something my agent had said to me mhm and I mean, like a few weeks late, like weeks later, right? I'm like, oh, oh, that's what she meant, right? Sort of. Right. So then, um, so now it's like, ah, and uh, and so I'm now. So then I have to go in and ca- kind of get on this meta level and like, wait, okay, let me wrap my mind around this. What is the change I'm making? And then I had to think about it, go into diffuse mode, which I resist, mm-hmm. but I, I said to myself consciously, it's okay. Like today is diffuse mode. Just space out, think on it. And also, rather than jumping on it, like, what am I fixing? Is this helping? And then kind of writing about it, thinking about it. And then and then eventually it was like, okay, this is what's happening. And then the scene came to me and I sort of sketched it out. So I now have like a sketched out version so I can go in and take all the different pieces and kind of cobble them together and then go back to print out and editing by hand, right? So it's like all this whole cycle. Right. Really amazing cycle of revision. But right now I feel kind of high on the fact that I hit something. Like I hit something. Like a Rocky Mountain high? 
Yeah, and like a vein of gold in that Rocky Mountain. Congratulations. Thank you. I mean, you know, I could be wrong, but that's how it feels. That's an emotion. Okay. Well, right. <clears throat> let's talk about this topic. So basically, so Angie, you are doing a lot of middle school math teaching, which is just a wonderful surprise. It's exciting. And um, so you're thinking about, and and in other ways, some some kind of frameworks or rubrics around learning have come mm-hmm. up. So one of them is this character snapshot thing that's... that's Well, that's I, not mine. You We got no. that from applying to a... From taking the SSH. Yeah. Not we didn't take it, but one of our children took it. And it was... Um, and so it was like something's either emerging, uh, developing, or, or demonstrating. demonstrating. Someone's... Some, you know, and, you know, there are a lot... I mean, that's a lot of the language that's being used in rubrics now, too. So you had a slightly modified... like. When I said emerging, you thought I was talking about something else. So one of them is emerging, developing, demonstrating. What's the other? What's the one you were thinking of? Well, there's ones, and they're all sort of slightly different. But then there's a four-step rubric model. So one is emerging. And so either you are maybe haven't seen the work before or you're... It really yeah. is just that first... Yeah. Yeah. And then the next stage is, gosh, I'm trying to remember now. The last two are like proficient and mastery, right? Okay. So, and that's, and again, these are just random ones that are, other people have other languages for right. them. But the idea is that what you're looking at is not something like the 100 point scale in grading, that you're looking at something that is hopefully a little less ambiguous so that, um, you know, when someone's doing something like mastery, they're really doing something above and beyond. So we don't, like, almost in the same way that the only way that I can think of a grading system right now kind of matching it is when students are doing AP work. And so they can get above a 4.0 because they can get an A in an AP class and get a 5, right? Mm -hmm. So then that's a (laughs) 5.0, right? Whereas everything else is like a 4.0 if you get a, an A, straight mm-hmm. up A. So here, so I'm just I'm just like scrolling mm-hmm. through here from this is a, this is grading rubrics sample scales at Brown. So they have like three levels like weak, satisfactory, strong, or beginning, intermediate, high, or low mastery, average mastery, high mastery, developing, competent, exemplary, weak, average, excellent. And I just as we're thinking about these, I mm-hmm. want to think about these in terms of both writing and how we continue learning as writers and growing and practicing in all these different levels and then i also right. want to think read about, the one before this one though hold oh. on and i want to think about the trajectory of character so those are the two things i want us to head toward. so you want to tie a rubric to a character flaw and well, map I wanted it to, to see if, if for both for the writer and for the character their possibility so then they go to four i levels. didn't know that was going to happen really I, yeah okay well surprise <laughs> so four levels they have things like unacceptable marginal proficient distinguished or beginning developing accomplished exemplary or needs yeah i think that again one of those things is the goals of a lot of these shifts are to get out of the notion that that there is a static quality to um a student's growth right mm-hmm. so when you use language like that or uh emerging progressing partial mastery mastery or not yet competent, partly competent, competent. See, that one seems terrible to me. Which one? 
not yet competent. Yeah. Well, here's the here's another. What was the one before that? I went. It was emerging, progressing, partial mm-hmm. mastery, mastery. Yeah, and and again, here's the thing. Like so, these rubrics again are in response to a particular education moment. So there's that break out of the. A through F. And it's try. I mean, I think the most important thing for writers is is when we are doing those kinds of static assessments of ourselves, of our work, is that really moving the work forward? So, well, look, before, cause I, here's the thing. So one more thing, which is the thing of there's unconscious incompetence, mm-hmm. conscious incompetence, mm-hmm. conscious competence, and then unconscious competence, right? Yes. So that, I love that arc a lot. So I just wanted to let, bring that last one into these these rubrics. Because I think, you know, if you want to tie it back to story, I think that the story ends before unconscious competence. Because that's a little boring. Yes. <laughs> well, so here's, okay. So I want to do two things, right? So the first is about the writing, and you talked about learning and growing. And I think that as creative people, one, I think we're drawn to not just being an unconscious competence. I actually think, you know, and what, what I love about, you know, the people I draw. By is, the way, that weird heavy breathing isn't me. It's, it's, it's Bandit. He's our third, isn't he? He is. He's a, he's a character in this podcast. Um, anyway, so uh, I think that as the, that the creative folks that I love working with, who I, you know, who come to me as students are often have a lot of competence in some other area and then they're coming and they're willing to be beginners or even, you know, or, or, or intermediate, but they're, you know, they're willing to leave conscious, unconscious, unconscious competence and move back towards incompetence because, um, and you know, not to say they're incompetent because they're it's better than incontinent. Right. But the, the thing is, I think what I guess I want to encourage us all is to, spend part of our creative time in the areas where we are emerging mm-hmm. or not yet proficient. Those or, are the most fun. Right? They're the most fun and they're, I mean, it's part of being alive, being um, individuating. I remember Penny Arcade, who was a Warhol. Yeah, she, yeah. she is. She, I mean, she was, she's, she is still Penny Arcade. She was a Warhol person. And she, she talked, and she came to Pratt when I was there and she talked about how most people stop individuating, or she had some, maybe some other word for it, but like at 25, and that, but that is that thing of just kind of constantly being willing to be on your edge and willing to be learning and willing to be growing, and how important that is to sort of being truly alive. Agreed. Yeah. So, but I think it's very scary. I think it's the reason people resist writing, <clears throat> because you're actually going in, you're going, you're, you're asking yourself to do things you don't yet know how to do. I think it's sort of funny because I am sort of the quintessential dilettante. <laughs> In a good way. And I think that there's something, I think there are categories of things. Of what kind of things? <laughs> well, I mean, categories of activity where it's less risky to be on your edge and learning, and there's categories where it's more risky to be on your Edge. So give me an example of a, a area where it's a less risky. I think it's right. different for different people, okay. right? So if, um, you know, I think about my mom, right? So she's 
where I get my curiosity from. And, you know, as is my dad, it's kind of, there's not really one of them. But anyway, <laughs> um, but for example, my mom has continued to do things like uh, study mineralogy, study art restoration. Gem. Yeah. Is that mineralogy? Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, art history. restoration, history. Uh, she just continues to keep. Plus, she was in your film. And, she was and a acting. Star of your film. So she's willing to try all these things on, yeah. but the, none of them really are her professional space, right? Mm. And so I think, and again, she's, you know, was an accountant, like the chief financial officer for a company. So to then say, and imagine being on your creative edge in accounting. I think we don't want that. We really. <laughs> but what's interesting is she actually went back to school and did that sort of. No, absolutely. So, she, know, did. she did. I did. It a just lot of risks to get there. I bet there was yeah. a whole period where she really was taking risks to get And there. all the way through. She took on giant projects. But the joke was about accounting. So we <laughs> moved on past that. <laughs> so. So I think, but I'm just to say that there are certain places where people are more comfortable taking risks. I think that's just true for everybody. What are the things you do when you're faced with a risk to encourage yourself or dare yourself or push yourself, you know, to take a risk beyond what maybe is, is comfortable? You know, that's tough. I mean, there's certain things where... Sitting in an auditorium for the first time and watching my film, really big, made me both terrified and happy at the same time. Actually, public display is often really challenging. Like for me, it's really challenging. I think it's true for everybody. I'm not saying I'm unique in that. But I think that um, I don't know. Sometimes you just have to create situations where you can't get out of it. <laughs> right? Like, you know that's the thing you're supposed to do. Right? Mm-hmm. So then you create a situation where it's going to happen, mm-hmm. but in a way that you can't really get out of it and that you will... Um, it'll be too important not to show up. So, you know, so I think that's basically what I do is I create situations. Like the screening. Like the screening. Which we now have a date for, which is Thursday, April 23rd. And we will soon have a link and soon you'll be able to buy advanced tickets at the Rialto Rialto Cinemas, which is actually no the, at Rialto Rialto Cinemas. Cinemas. Which also has an IPA on tap right now by Barrel Brothers, which is, it's Rialto Real. We just saw Just Mercy there today. Uh, yes. We love our Rialto. We do. And that was a wonderful it film. It was very powerful. And we just cried pretty much from beginning to end. Basically. So, yeah. Um, so in terms of character, um, do you think that these match in any way to the kind of the arc of, of story, these kinds of rubrics? Because partly because we're asking people to grow and learn. Mm-hmm. And, and so it might even be a way of evaluating how effective Where, the rubrics well, are. Like maybe we can take from story and move toward, have a, you know, have a hero's journey grading rubric so people feel motivated and inspired. But what's the Well, here's the thing. There? And here's the, the thing I would say is, is totally true is there's this model of grading called standards-based grading, okay. right? So that you're super concrete. You're not saying arbitrarily, uh, I didn't like your behavior, so you're getting a B when your work for the academic piece was an A. Yeah. 
So what we're going to do in a standards-based grading scale is we're going to look at what are the standards that we were supposed to have hit. And did you demonstrate mastery in those? And of course, when we begin the school year, you shouldn't be at mastery, right? right? You should be at the beginning. You should be emerging. And in the same way, if you're that specific, I would say it maps really well if you're doing something like a standards-based assessment. So you're looking at a concrete, specific thing, which we would call the character's limiting belief. Mm. And then at the beginning, yeah, they are, you know, they're in a world where things aren't working because they're holding on to that. And so you could argue that that's sort of like an emerging awareness of what's going on around them. So as they go through the rubric, um, you know, they might hit a place where they're you know, when you say that they're proficient, I think that's where the story ends Mm -hmm. because everything else is sort of, um, you know, mastery is like, I don't know, maybe not. I think maybe. (laughs) I mean, I want to say one of the things I loved in learning and especially in college with these brilliant theoretical thinkers, Mm -hmm. I mean, and I did work with some of the kind of greatest ones like Mm -hmm. Donna Haraway and Wendy Brown and, um, and I would say Bettina Aptecker, like just these people who are just brilliant. But and and what? A, but you know, especially with like Donna Haraway and Wendy Brown, like just turning my whole understanding of things like mm. around, upside down, like mm-hmm. reversing it, like just these incredible shifts in how I saw and understood the world. And um, and I think that's something I love about story, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I mean, you know, Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier is is actually about you, the picture that you're using to see the world is all wrong. Mm-hmm. And therefore, like, you're adding things up in a way that, you know, is giving you a false picture. Right. And that, and and instead it's this, right? So I I love that. Mm-hmm. And, and the Ira Glass, Ira Glass said that all of the This American Lives, they all have a d- different theme, right? But right. That, that really the theme for every one of them is, I thought this would happen and instead this happened. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and that's sort of story. Right. But it's also learning in a way. In the, some of the most exciting learning I've this happened for me has been I thought it was this and instead it was this. But here's the thing. You had to tie it back to something. So you could not have made that learning leap without having an association of some kind for it to stick to. So um, I think what I mean by that is like, especially with something like theory, gosh, I hated theory. (laughs) Um, Theory always felt like not connected. And so for me, it felt really challenging to read this language that was ostensibly having a dialogue with issues of power because we went to Santa Cruz and that was like in the 90s, that's all we talked about. And at the same time, they were so many things were written in a, in a language that wasn't going to be accessible to people who weren't already in the academic sphere. So part of what I wrote my undergraduate thesis about was kind of about that inaccessible language and whether you could challenge the status quo with a language that was accessible. Right. Do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? If if you maybe needed something slightly incomprehensible in order to like catapult us out of no. what is comprehensible, but not okay. 
requiring change. Mm-hmm. Anyway. <laughs> the answer is no. <laughs> He's like, no. <laughs> Oh my god, the dog it keeps wanting to go out and then realizes it's, it's raining, raining and yes. I keep opening the door. <laughs> so anyway, um so I think it's an interesting thing to talk about because I thought we were gonna talk about something more like we as individuals and how we can maybe talk to ourselves or assess ourselves and our processes in a way that we can both kind of track our improvement because I think that's really hard with oh, writing. Right. It's really difficult to say, here are the exact places where I have improved. I knew where I was. I was a, you know, so-so sentence writer and now I've improved 38% in my style. So I, I feel really good about that. I will say I was just speaking with someone who is about to start editing a book of hers that was purchase right so it's 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 forthcoming and she was saying I'm such a better writer than I was when I wrote that book right so looking back so that's a place where sometimes when you're about to go public and you're always a better writer than you were when you wrote the thing that's coming out like two years later to mm-hmm. you know what I mean and so or five or ten years later depending and so you know I think that is a place where people go oh, wait I've really gotten better but maybe not specifically how. But. but being in the classroom, one of the things you're doing as a teacher is you're not, you know, it sounds, like, oh, you're teaching children. That's what you're doing. You're teaching people. But you're also creating methods by which people can understand that that growth has happened. And we don't do that for ourselves. We don't tend to be uh, people who are like, you know what, I'm going to make a portfolio. And in a year from now, I'm going to look at the work I did last, you know, at the beginning of the year and you know, be able to see my growth. Yeah. Or in a different vein, we don't tend to write with a focus on the areas we want to improve. So very often we will have some large sense of what it is we're trying to change in our writing. But mostly what we want to change in our writing is whether or not it's been published. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. I mean, I feel like... So at, underneath all of that is this desire to have this certain kind of impact on the reader. And in my own reading, you know, it's, it's, it's my experience as a reader, which is frequent, mm-hmm. right, that causes me to want to write because I want to be able to do that, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. That's so, um, so I don't know. I do you think I'm too cynical? Yeah, I do. All right. So is there anything else you wanted to say? Because I feel like I brought up the topic and you were like, oh, and you had all these things to say. I said, wait for the podcast. Do you remember what you got all excited about? I think I was primarily interested in the idea of having that kind of focus and using a rubric model. I mean, honestly, if you use a four-step rubric um, and you and you have a really clear flaw that you're exploring, you could be easily enough, act one, how does this look? What does it look like to be in a state of emerging? Well, here's right? one of, let's each throw one out. Like mine clearly right now, and, and I think even this will be true for the next thing, is simplification. Right? And we talked last mm. episode about, you know, is your, I can never remember the language of it, but that Matt Bird question about is your plot simple enough that it gives room for your character? That's mm-hmm. not quite how he says it, but... I mean, the fact that I can't remember it is probably a deep 
like you don't think it would like lacked a pithiness that is no because I remember maybe but there's so many things I remember and and ever and it's just I think of it slightly different than it is so in any case you can go back to the last week and remember it for me but um, that so for me Mm -hmm. as even this response indicates I just am very complicated everything has multiple sides I mean right like every I just. Okay, so how does that relate back to the... So so I am not proficient mm-hmm. in the kind of streamlined simplicity of story that gets that allows you to go deep rather than wide. So if you were going to write a story about a novelist wrestling her novel to the ground and she were emerging... Okay. In her simplification, what does emerging look like? I don't know. What does emerging look like? Now, do you mean like in a dynamic, imagistic way that would make for a good story? Or do you mean, like, what does that question actually mean? Well, for me, the thing that I felt excited about was when I th- when we talked about it as sort of pairing it with a story or... Um, actually specifically pairing it with a story, having it be sort of a contained brainstorming box. Having so the, you know the, how Blake Snyder has... The rubric. Yeah, so you know how Blake Snyder has his, you know, six things that need fixing, right? Right, right. So if you were to say, you know what, that, that works for me or doesn't work for me, this rubric is actually great because it gives you the opportunity to then do kind of like a developmental brainstorm that is uh, if... This person is struggling with this problem. What does it look like when they're just learning to understand that they have a problem? Right, you're like still sounding it out. Yes. And then what would be mastery? What would that look like? And you can actually, when you think about literally what does that look like, you can start generating scenarios mm-hmm. and scenes. Well, okay, what it means is if a person doesn't have um, a fear of intimacy, say, say let's say that was like the problem they mm-hmm. were overcoming. If a person doesn't have a fear of intimacy, mastery of that would look like, uh, like, well, you know, and they could just say, well, they'd be able to. Um, if they no longer had a fear of intimacy. Right. But you yeah. don't even have to think about no longer. You would just say, what does a person who oh, has oh, mastery over this issue oh, yeah, do yeah. in their day? And you might say something like, these people are the kind of people who would be able to stand in front of a crowd and say something really embarrassing, <laughs> right? Um, because honest. they can be honest in a new way. They can be <clears throat> present in uncomfortable situations in a new way. They can uh, put their own needs aside in a new way. So then you start generating all of these ideas based on what mastering this particular limiting belief might look like. That's and so powerful. I mean, I right. think for me to think, what would it look like to really have a mastery over that piece of story? Mm-hmm. And then you don't necessarily even have to be like um, taking all of them. Some of that may not even end up in the story. But generating a bunch of ideas like that could give you scenes, could give you a bouncing off place for the beginning. Uh, and something to compare against when you are doing your story development process, right? Because they are going to be getting feedback throughout the story about that flaw, right? 
I mean, one of like Pixar, for example, has a lot of mastery around story. But but what's interesting is their process takes years, yes. takes many brains. Yes, take you know, it's like really there's a process of doing a lot of of thinking, brainstorming, activity, trying things on, and P- then pitching, pitching, and p- practicing and playing stuff out to get to that simplicity. So that's that. But maybe- I would say like the thing about pitching a story is it, especially in those developmental stages is that it gives the writer an opportunity to really engage with what's at the core. I don't think you, I mean, I love, you know, IDEO had this in their like storytelling for influence. You see it in Pixar, you see it in a lot of different places where people are like, let's do iterations of the story in the lightest possible way. Meaning I don't have to generate 600 hours of animation to find out that the story blows. <laughs> right? So, yeah. So I, I guess for me what's encouraging about that is there is a process for mm-hmm. everything. That part of mastery might be building a process rather than skipping over a process. I think what I want to do coming out of this... I have no idea how to go about it, so maybe next week we can discuss it. Okay, great. Masterminds groups for artists. Yeah. Because exactly what we just talked about, having people who can hear your pitch, hear your idea, give you feedback in a light way, in that fast turnaround sort of way, would be amazing, right? Mm -hmm. And what Pixar has given itself is what was the brain trust, right? And there's been some issues with the brain trust. But... It was a group of people who had some set ideas about story, but also have people coming in. So there's a lot of different people coming into their space and developing story in their framework, right? So Meg LaFauve went in. I can't remember the guy who wrote. Um, there's a bunch of people who aren't just Pixar people, and I'm mm-hmm. trying to remember. So they're coming in, so they're like continuing to build a community of thinking people. So there you go. I'm going to say, how do you build an artist mastermind group? Well, That's in my an question. an interesting way, I think Book in a Year, our Book in a Year class does some of that. Exactly. It is an artist mastermind group, which is great language for it. But we can definitely con- continue to think about that. And we'd love to hear from you, our listeners, because it is now time for Steal This. this. Amateur poets borrow. Professional poets steal. What have you come across in your readings and wanderings that you would like to take and make your own? And I have one. I, I, this happened in my reading this morning and I thought, oh, I want to talk about this. So I'm reading Politics, the Form of a Mortal Girl. Mm-hmm. And there's a section that is written as a sort of comic book script, right? So it says panel one and then there's a description and here's the dialogue. And so it gives kind of a little like here's kind of what the picture would be and maybe this. and A textual storyboard. Yeah. Which is, a, which is a script, right? And it's because it's directive. It's like this, it should be like this and this and this. It's, it's got this kind of authority to it. The, the work has already been done of knowing what's going to be there. And then the, the script is a document that describes it. It's not a document that discovers it. Now, the story may have discovery in it, but the script is an authoritative document that's helping an artist know how to create Mm -hmm. this image from the writer's mind. 
the book itself has a similar authority. So it's a kind of, it's got an element of magical realism to it. But it's so authoritative that I actually keep having this conversation that I find to, you know, again, and we've talked about this on the podcast somewhat to my chagrin, that I have that little Terry Gross, like, is this autobiographical thing? Mm -hmm. And this um, is so clearly, like, of course it could be, but but it's also totally magical realism. So there's many ways in which it couldn't be. And it's, and it's irrelevant. It's a stupid question and all of those things. But the compliment in it is the writing feels like... It's describing what happened, mm-hmm. not imagining it in the moment. So right. there's, it's not shakily like trying to learn how to ride a bike. It's like watching that kind of, right? It's watching mastery in a way. And the script reminded me of that. And so it kind of helped me articulate the difference between an exploratory draft mm-hmm. and a kind of authoritative like, let me, like, I'm telling you stories, trust me, mm-hmm. to quote Jeanette Winterson, right? I'm telling you stories, trust me. And that's what I want to steal. That sounds fantastic. Yeah, please to me. Andrea Lawler is the author. It'll be in the show notes. It will. Again. I have a feeling. Yes. Yes. Um, well, you know, I have come to the realization that some of the things, I've loved different kinds of books over the course of my life. I... I'm kind of bored with a whole bunch of books, different kinds of books, but I actually have been really enjoying some of the books my kids are into. So, manga. Well, not the manga so much, but the, um, you know, Leo's been re-listening. We do a lot of audiobooks, and he's been re-listening to the Sherlock Holmes set. The, the Stephen Fry. Mm-hmm. Frey. Stephen Fry. 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 It'll be in the show notes. And, you know, there's a way in which, even though it's from the 19th century in England, there's a way in which it's kind of straightforward. You know, he, you know, here's Holmes and he's doing his thing. And, and I think that sometimes, and this is about my own fixed mindset, I think I get so hung up in style when I'm writing, you know, like an adult novel. (laughs) And there's a way in which there's something really liberating about the sort of clean language of YA novels. Mm. And they can be hugely powerful and effective. And so, you know, I think the thing I sort of want to take is that accessibility, which we talked about earlier, but I think it is a value of mine. And um, it doesn't mean that I can't go on forays into bizarro language, but... So that's what I'm stealing this week. I love it. (laughs) Okay, until next week. Power on.